Let's take a moment to pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For it is in the strong name of our Redeemer, our Advocate, our Mediator, and indeed our Righteousness, our Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray. Amen. Now, for those of us in the Christology class, I'm not sure whether for you this is a double dose or a double whammy. I guess we'll find out. In all seriousness, uh, throughout our chapel series on being satisfied in God, uh, we approach this vital central truth concerning the Christian life from a variety of standpoints. Uh, First and foremost, by scriptural exposition. Uh, Secondly, by way of personal testimony. And now, this morning, I would like to call our attention to an additional approach to learning about this truth. And that is through the avenue of church history. And very particularly, through the lives of those brothers and sisters in the Lord who have followed Christ before us. When we think about it, this too is a form of discipleship. Because when we examine the lives of those brothers and sisters uh, who experienced life the way that we do, struggled the way that we do, and were nevertheless used greatly by God, we see that they, through their lives as recorded for us, also show us how we, by God's grace and by the enablement of His Holy Spirit, can also appropriate and live out the gospel as we are constantly being conformed into the image of Christ. Now, one such person in this regard who comes to mind is Augustine, who was most likely the most important theologian and teacher of Scripture in the church, second only to the Apostle Paul. And I say this because after Augustine, for about the next thousand years or so, and even today, He's quoted by everybody. He's referenced by everybody. And so we could say in many respects that Paul, the way that we approach the writings of Paul, is often through various uh, insights that were given to us by Augustine. Uh, You go to the Reformation in the 16th century. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cranmer, all the others, Tyndale, they all quote Augustine. And so, in many ways, the way that we think of Christian theology today, the way that we even read Scripture today, is in many ways shaped by Augustine. Now, his was a life that was miraculously transformed by God's grace uh, from that of a a fleshly, self-indulgent, arrogant worldling to that of a servant of Christ who was one of the most profound teachers of his word. If we were somehow, for our purposes here, to identify the the central idea that runs through Augustine's vast theology, it would most likely be this. Our happiness, or blessedness, as he would define happiness, is found only in loving and worshiping the triune God, who first shares his love with us. Augustine himself summarily expresses this in the opening words of his testimony called the Confessions. 
And by the way, I firmly believe with every fiber of my being that every Christian, every believer, should read the Confessions of Augustine. And in my very candid opinion, now consider the source here when I say this, I honestly believe that every Bible college student at some point at his or her time in Bible college should read Augustine's Confessions. Because here we see firsthand what, what the transformative grace of God looks like in a person's life. Here's how he begins. Great are thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power, and thy wisdom is infinite. And man wants to praise you, man who is only a small portion of what you have created, and who goes about carrying with him his own mortality, the evidence of his own sin, and evidence that thou resistest the proud. Yet still man, the small portion of creation, wants to praise you, you stimulate him to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Again, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Indeed, Augustine worshipfully declares this because it was his own experience. And so he regarded his life both as a believer and also as a theologian. And yes, as a pastor. He was also, a, we keep in mind, he was a pastor or what, we would, or what they would have called in that period a bishop. Because he viewed everything that he did as his worship and praise to God on account of the grace that he showed to him through Christ. And so now, let's begin the life of Augustine. And obviously we want to start with his early life. The known as Aurelius Augustinus, known to us as Augustine. This, one, this person was born in Tagasta, North Africa, uh, near the city of Hippo. Now, now, if you have a map, if you were to envision a map of Africa, this would be in northern Africa in the modern country of Tunisia. So that is where, that's where Augustine was born, and that's where he grew up. And this was a small town, uh, as I said, just there in North Africa in what is now Tunisia. Now his father, uh, whose name was Patricius, was first a pagan, but then, he received, but then he later became a Christian just shortly before his death. Now probably the most formative influence in his life was his mother, whose name was Monica. And her constant love and spiritual concern for her son was probably, as I said, the deepest, at least religious, influence in Augustine's life. Now, although Augustine was uh, raised in something of a Christian home, at least by virtue of his mother, he didn't become a Christian until later, and we'll get into that momentarily. Now, like many in his time, uh, he, had li he, he lived a very immoral life. He 
had a, he had a live-in girlfriend. He had a son with her out of wedlock. And from what Augustine tells us, his father was moderately wealthy. His father saw in his life uh, some potential, tremendous potential to be very uh, well-educated and successful. And so towards this end, his father enrolls him in the best schools there in uh, Hippo. He does well there. And eventually, he goes to Carthage, which is also in that same general area, which was the major city of that area, where he studied rhetoric. Now, if you have Louise for any classes, I'm sure you know what rhetoric is. The art of oral communication. In Augustine's case, it would have been the art of, of oratory. Because in, at that time, skill in oratory was the path to success. And the usual career route here would have been for someone to successfully learn rhetoric, teach rhetoric himself, and then practice it on behalf of a local government or something like that, and eventually rise up in the political world to the point where uh, he could possibly be a, a very influential official in the imperial court. Because at this time, this is the, uh, the, pow the, the political power that's in place at this time is the uh, Christian Roman Empire. This is the Roman Empire after Constantine. So we're looking about a late late 300s, early 400s. So that's the period that we're roughly dealing with. So Augustine went to Carthage. He excelled in his studies. But in the meantime, he tells us that while he was a brilliant student, while he was fully dedicated to his studies, he indulged his flesh and he enjoyed it. He tells us about this in detail. Uh, to, if you can imagine... For, especially for those of us who, who might participate in cross life, and you see the and you and you run in and you, you you interact with the typical MSU student and everything that that entails. Well, think of Augustine as somebody like that. You name it, he did it. You name it, he indulged in it, and he talks about it. And he's very candid. He says, during this stage in his life, he loved sin. He tells a story in this regard uh, during his time there at Carthage when he is, um, between his studies, he managed to associate with members of a local gang. Yes, they had gangs in the, four, in the, in the fourth century. And they would go around Carthage, and most likely the members of this gang were fellow students like himself, they went around Carthage causing trouble. And he tells a story of, um, of their visiting of a market there where the vendor is selling fruit, and specifically he was selling pears. So they steal these pears. And then he goes on to say that, uh, that they bake off with these pears, they eat them a little bit, and then they just throw the rest of them to a herd of pigs. And then, he go, and then as he's reflecting on this, he says, why did we do this? Well, it's not that we were desperately hungry, heaven forbid. I mean, we were in the finest school in that part of the world. 
We're the most prestigious college or university in this part of the world. Our parents had money. So it's not as if we were desperately hungry. Moreover, the pears didn't look that good. They didn't taste that good. So why do we do it? And he goes on to say, it's because I loved sin. I enjoyed doing what was wrong. I loved sin. And I loved sin because I was seeking happiness in my self-indulgence. Whether it be uh, pro- whether it be in the area of promiscuity, and he talks about that a whole lot. Whether it be uh, just going to the uh, gladiatorial games and watching violence for violence sake because he entertained his bloodlust. He simply says, I loved sin. And I loved sin because I was finding happiness or blessedness or trying to in my own self-indulgence. Now, in the meantime, despite all this, he finishes his education and he sets up shop to teach rhetoric there in Carthage and uh, he gets bored he gets bored with it not only does he get bored with it he didn't like the quality of the students he was teaching because they didn't do the, they didn't uh, they they weren't applying themselves to their studies to his satisfaction so he decides to go for greener pastures he goes across to Rome obviously they're in Rome He'll have superior students. And Rome is right near the official imperial capital, which which at this time was Milan. And so he goes to Rome, he sets up shop, and his suspicion was right. The students were better. Problem is that when it came time for them to pay their bills, they just made off. So that proved to be a source of frustration to Augustine. However, though, through a contact that he had in the the imperial capital of Milan, he receives an invitation to come to Milan and to assume the most prestigious position in that city. And that was to be the, the orator, the rhetorician of Milan. Well, what was that? Well, it was a combination of things in that world. It was, it, you might say, it was a combination of, uh, of a... Of, uh, of a district attorney or you know, a district attorney and a, and a glorified MC. He would plead case, he would plead cases before the imperial court, but then on certain occasions he would give a grand celebratory speeches to commemorate various major events in the city. And that was a very, very prestigious job. Now, in the meantime, Augustine becomes disillusioned with his self-indulgence. This is never, he's, he's indulging himself even at this time in everything you can imagine. Every kind of vice you can think of. But he realizes there's no happiness in this. There's no meaning in this. There's got to be something more than this. And so he begins exploring 
other means of trying to achieve his view of happiness. So he joins a cult known as the Manichaeans. And for those of us in Christology where we were talking about Gnosticism, uh, keep in mind the, the Manichaeans were just another one of these Gnostic cults. Spirit is good, material is bad, and if you're a Manichaean, because the body was bad, it didn't matter what you did. You could, you can, you could do whatever you want. You could indulge the flesh uh, to any extent that you wanted because it didn't matter because the, the body was bad anyway. And besides, you could pay somebody in the Manichaean cult to live a really, really strict life on your behalf anyway uh, while you just went around and lived it up. Well, but then Augustine began asking some very serious questions of some of the leaders of, of this uh, cult, and they couldn't answer his questions to his satisfaction. In the meantime, he hears about a preacher in the city of Milan. He is the bishop, or what you and I might call the senior pastor of the church in Milan. And his name is Ambrose. And Ambrose, from what we understand, was one of the greatest preachers in the Western church. And Augustine hears about his reputation as an orator. And so he wants to go and check this guy out. And so he goes to church there in Milan to hear this guy. He's not interested in what he has to say. He's interested in the way that he says it because he's also a professional rhetorician. He's a professional orator. And over time, as he's listening to Ambrose, he likes his oratory. He's intrigued by his oratory. And so he goes back. And then as he continues to go back, listening to Ambrose, he starts paying attention to what he's actually saying. And he is preaching these very, very powerful sermons on the Gospels. And these make an impression on him. In the meantime, his mother is praying for him. Uh, Augustine tells a story in which his mother goes before uh, their pastor in tears over her son, uh, to which then the pastor said, uh, truly, a child of so many tears cannot be lost. Well, her, well, his mother acts on this and follows him to Milan, follows him all the way to Milan. Now, you could you know, one could just imagine what this is like. I mean, you can imagine. You know, you, let's come back to a cross life for just a moment, and the typical MSU student that would come to that. You can just imagine uh, uh, that your typical MSU student who kind of lit goes to school, works, lives it up whenever, uh, whenever there's a good party to go to or something like that, and his, mom, and his mom is following him all over the place. You can just imagine what that would be like. Well, that's what, well, well Augustine was, was, was well established in his profession, so you can imagine uh, somebody that's very high up in their profession and their mom is following them all over the place. That's, that's, that was Augustine's experience, uh, which proved to be a source of frustration to him, to say the least. 
Now, in the meantime, he's intrigued by what Ambrose has to say. And he is under conviction, but he's not there yet. As a matter of fact, he's, as a matter of fact he realizes that uh, he's got some, he has some problems in um, the area of what you and I might call personal purity here. And so, and so he's under heavy conviction about this because he realizes, all right, I'm pursuing, the, I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing every form of promiscuity I can think of here, but it's not getting me anywhere. Not only am I not achieving happiness in this, I'm actually feeling guilty over this. And so, he, and so he's, under, he's under conviction as a result of listening to Ambrose, but then he prays, um, you know, give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. Danny, this might make for some good material for cross life. Um, anyway. Now, now, he does some pretty despicable things. One is uh, the girl that he was, the living girlfriend that he had, where she bore a son to him. He has an opportunity to marry up. He's not married to this girl. He's, 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 he's living with her out of wedlock, which even in this period of history was a very common thing. But he has an opportunity to marry a senator's daughter. And if he can marry the senator's daughter, he can rise up very high in the, uh, in the imperial court, perhaps eventually become a senator himself. And, but there's a problem. He's got this living girlfriend with this son. So... He does what any ambitious person of this period would have done. He takes her to a ship along with the kid, puts them on the ship, sends them back to Carthage. Now it's time for him to pursue his worldly ambitions. However, things take a different turn. Because shortly after he does this, he embarks upon the most serious spiritual crisis of his life. To make a very long story short, he hears of some Roman soldiers who became Christians and their lives totally changed. And he is fascinated by this. He's thinking, how is it that these common soldiers can live this different life, and here I am with all of my learning, all of my education, all of my success, and I can't. Now, that plus listening to Ambrose, plus speaking with Ambrose, things come to a head. Things reach a climax. In 386, Augustine is in his garden, in his big palatial house there in Milan, and he is thinking about a lot of these things. And he overhears some children playing a game. And one of the refrains in this game was, pick up and read, pick up and read. And so, he takes that as a prompting from God 
to pick up and read. And he happened to have Paul's epistle to the Romans with him, to which he turns randomly, and his eyes fall on the passage that Glenn just read earlier. Verses 13 and 14 of Romans 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. And right then and there, according to his own testimony in Book 8 of the Confessions, if you don't read anything else in the Confessions, I strongly recommend you read that. The, 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 the vivid, vivid account of his conversion there in Book 8. And there he's changed immediately. And at the exact same time, his best friend, Olypius is transformed at exactly the same time. And he tells his mother, she rejoices, she dies shortly thereafter. And then, God's call is such on his life, he wants to serve God. He gives up everything. He quits his job goes back to Carthage before that he's baptized by Ambrose he goes back to Carthage studies for the ministry and in 389 three years after his conversion he becomes a presbyter or, an el or what you and I would call an elder. Shortly after that, he becomes the assistant bishop of this little town called Hippo, and then a year later, this is in 395, he becomes the bishop or the senior pastor of this church. Now, what's fascinating about his theology is that it's within the context of the ministry of the church that he engages in theology and that he writes all of these significant theological works that define Christian theology for the next th over a thousand years. Now, one inst one, there's an interesting incident that he records regarding what his life became like. He's walking around in Carthage one day and one of his many, many girlfriends sees him and she tries desperately to call his attention. And he's just walking along his way, he's ignoring her. She continues saying, Augustine, it is I. Augustine, it is I. He continues to ignore her. But then she finally gets right up to him and says, Augustine, it is I. And then he says, yes, but it is not I. I'm not the Augustine that you knew. I'm a new creature in Christ. So he faithfully served as a pastor there as a bishop in Hippo, writing various, various theological works that have a tremendous impact on the development of Christian theology for centuries to come. Now, we'll be getting, now God willing, we'll be getting into this a lot in a lot more detail, Lord willing, next fall in church history. 
but, but, but as far as his life is concerned, we'll leave it here. Now, after many, many faithful years of service, he dies uh, there in Hippo in 430 with a barbarian tribe known as the Vandals having besieged the city. And shortly after he died, they trashed the entire city, leaving only his library remaining. But now, let's get in to his theology. Augustine's theology is nothing less than what we would call a theology of grace. Now, his theology of grace occurs within the context of one of his many controversies, and this was his controversy with a British monk by the name of Pelagius. Now, Pelagius was teaching that we can live a sinless life without God's help. You don't need grace to live a sinless life. All you have to do is obey the Ten Commandments. After all, that's why God gave them. I mean, if you couldn't keep the commandment, if you didn't have the ability to keep the commandments, he wouldn't have given them to you in the first place. If God commands it, you can do it. That was Pelagius' entire position. If God commands it, you can do it. You don't need grace. That's a cop-out. God has given you a free will. All you have to do is buck up, fulfill the ten, live according to the Ten Commandments, and you've got it. Therefore, you can achieve a sinless life, period. Well, that aroused Augustine's opposition. Because, well, first of all, because of what Scripture taught, and secondly, because of his own experience. Now, let me mention this very quickly. How, from Augustine's perspective, Augustine never once saw, viewed, doctrine, and a life lived in God as opposites. He would say that in order to worship God rightly, you have to believe rightly about him and about what he has done. So all this simply to say that where Augustine was concerned... The dichotomy between life and doctrine did not exist. The, the alleged dichotomy between experience and theology did not exist. No, theology served as the basis for our worship. Theology and doctrine served as the basis for our devotion and our service to God. So that's the position from which Augustine is approaching this. Now, in terms of this specific issue with regards to Pelagius, here's his response. First of all, God created us for the purpose of loving and worshiping him. That's why we exist. God created us in his image so that we may love him and express that love to him by worship. But here's the problem. Adam sinned. Adam disobeyed, and because Adam sinned against God, we receive that sinful nature. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what it meant for Augustine. Love, pure love is love for God. This, this should be the outgrowth of of the image of God perfectly constituted without sin. However, because of sin, 
our love for God as expressed properly to our neighbor is perverted. It's mutated. It's, it becomes less than what it should be. And so as a result, love mutates or morphs into self-love, known as lust. Moreover, as a result of this, our wills are, quote-unquote, turned in unto itself. And so because our because our love for God has been perverted into self-love, our wills and our desires being corrupted by sin, are now turn, we are now turned in upon ourselves, and therefore we live with only one goal and one goal only, and that is to gratify self. And this lust resulting from our wills having been turned in upon themselves manifests itself in what he called a threefold lust. First, through the lust for knowledge. Now, in Augustine's context, this would have meant knowledge that's obtained by magic, or what you and I today would consider the occult. So, knowledge obtained by forbidden means in order to enhance one's own sense of self-gratification. Secondly, there is the lust for bodies. This has to do with exploiting other people sexually in order to gratify oneself. No regard, take advantage of anybody and everybody you possibly can, in order to gratify your own physical desires. Thirdly, there was the, it manifests itself in the lust for power, the desire to dominate and control others. And by the way, that, this third aspect factors very prominently in one of his other most important works called The City of God. This lust for power manifests itself in the desire control and dominate others. This is why we have empires and this is why people use others to achieve their ends. However, God, through the work of Christ, by means of his grace, miraculously transforms the human will. The hu- in other, now, in terms of his discussion against Pelagius, you and I, are in, we are trapped in this state. We cannot get out of this state. We are literally enslaved to our sins. We are enslaved to our desires. We are enslaved to our lust until the grace of God miraculously transforms that will, just as it did with him as he was confronted with Romans 13. And then, as a result of God's grace transforming the will, once again, our lust is then transformed once again back into love.
And that love, rightfully, once again, is in the process of being directed to God in worship and demonstrated to others. Not for the sake of what we can gain from them, but simply to give of ourselves to them as God constantly gives of himself to us. We seek their well-being henceforth and not our own. Now it's interesting, this also factors, well I'll, bet, I'll get into that in just a moment. Now, the agent of God's transformative grace is the Holy Spirit, who Augustine also viewed as being synonymous with love based on his reading of 1 John 4. When you ever have a chance, read Augustine's sermons on 1 John when you have a chance, where he gets into this in a lot more detail. See, the whole, so the Holy Spirit, according to Augustine, indwells us, therefore love indwells us. And that is the primary result of God's transforming our wills and our lives by His grace. Now, this also factors into His view of the Trinity. And we can get into a, go into a lot of details about that, but for the sake of time, this will have to suffice. See, Augustine's view of love as the, as the chief result of, of his transformative grace working in us is based upon his view of the Trinity, in which, by way of analogy, he understands the Father as the lover, the one who loves, the Son as the beloved, and then, interestingly, the Holy Spirit as the mutual act of love between them, between the Father and the Son. And by the way, when he says this, he's not diminishing the, the, the personality of the Holy Spirit in any way. He's using this as an analogy to explain how the relations within the Trinity factor uh, within our own lives and our lives as Christians with one another. And so he says the Holy Spirit as the mutual, who acts as the mutual act of love between the Father and the Son actually binds them together and hence binds the Trinity together. And then as a result of this, the Holy Spirit then indwells us and because the Holy Spirit indwells us, love should bind us all together as Christians on the basis of our union with Christ. So, in sum, for Augustine, based on his experience, based upon his reading of Scripture, which the Spirit of God used to totally transform his life, and upon his further reflection and teaching and studying of Scripture and so forth, this would be his conclusion. All right, what's happiness? Here's happiness, or what he called blessedness. And as Christians, we should probably think in terms of blessedness than happiness, because blessedness is more, biblically speaking, specific. And it's this, resting in God by sharing in his triune love. As we rest in God... 
as our refuge, as our stay, as our peace, because Christ has made that possible, we share in God's love. We receive God's love, the love that is shared amongst the persons in the Trinity and therefore because of that and because we are united to Christ by the bond of His Spirit, that makes, us po- that makes it possible for us to demonstrate the same amongst ourselves because the same spirit of love that unites those in the Godhead unites us to Christ and therefore unites us to one another. And uh, Glenn, could you, or I could, or I'll close. All right. Our Father and God, we thank you that you disciple us through the lives of those, our brothers and sisters who've gone before us. And Father, we humbly ask that we would live in the reality based on the declarations of your word, of the transformative power of your grace, as your spirit applies constantly to us the work accomplished by your dear son. And Father, we ask that we here, beginning at Montana Bible College, in our community here, that we would live the reality of that same love uniting us together as it stems from our union with Christ. And we ask, Lord, that that would be so abundantly evident, not only before the churches in this community, but before the community itself. So then the community will hear the gospel that we profess and proclaim. Grant this, O Lord, for the sake of our Savior and our Advocate, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.